Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert, experts on expert. I'm Dave Shepard, and I'm joined by Miniature Mouse with the Sweet. Maximus Attitude. Hello. Maximus Powers. This episode of Experts on Experts is with Susan David. Susan David is a PhD. She's uh, one of the world's leading management thinkers and an award-winning Harvard Medical School psychologist. She has an incredible TED Talk that I saw that got me interested in her called the Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. And she has a book, Emotional Agility, where she talks at great length about these concepts. I found her to be really, really helpful in understanding your emotions, identifying them, and learning how to avoid just chasing your emotions to places. Yeah, I agree. And and letting the emotions tell you more about yourself as opposed to just letting them control you. Yes, I clicked many of the boxes she brought up. You clicked one or two. No, I did too. One or two. All right. Well, please enjoy Susan David. We are supported by New Balance. Whether you're going for your first ever jog around the park, getting ready for a marathon, or even picking up the pace on the last stretch before you get home, if you run, you're a runner. Whether you need shoes for comfort, stability, or race day speed, they've got you covered. Because the only right way to run is your way. New Balance. Run your way. Visit newbalance.com running to learn more. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you, uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah. Easy peasy? So easy. The best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. He's an How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Where are you at in time and space? I'm in space in Boston. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and in time, I'm at three in the afternoon, relaxed, happy, walked, beautiful day. And if you don't mind me asking, who are you quarantining with? <laughs> Isn't that a new word for our vocab? Yeah, it's yeah. like no longer, you know, where you're going on vacation or what are your plans? So it's like, who are you quarantining with? Yeah, who's your pod? Yeah, who's my pod? My pod since February has been my husband, who's a doctor. So that has its various complications as well as my two kids. Okay. Yeah, so it's been kind of fascinating because he's been very much on the forefront of a lot of what's been going on, and it's been really interesting. Well, then I guess this question then might not apply to you because if he's been so busy in his normal routine, as it sounds like maybe he has, maybe you guys have not succumbed to the same, what seems like kind of universal stress between couples. I know my wife and I have had some real major ups and downs, and most of our friends I think this, you know, new living arrangement where you're with each other 24-7 yeah. has just presented all these new issues. 
I mean, I think it's a whole new world that we're negotiating and navigating in so many different ways. And I think both of those words come in. You know, for us, he's been busy in his normal thing, but we still are at home. We homeschooling two kids. We have been doing this since February. He came to me in December and he was like, this thing is going to be big. I'm buying masks. I'm buying toilet paper. And I was like, you are going crazy. You are ridiculous. Yeah. And then I ate my words. So I think in so many ways, it's a renegotiation for all of us. It's like, who are we? What is our identity? Who are we without our work? What does the relationship look like? Like, what does effective parenting look like? Oh, yeah. What does friendship look like? You know, how are we with our friends? There's all of this stuff. I mean, it's such an extraordinary moment. It really is. As you point out, it's like put a wrinkle in nearly every compartment of your life. You know, it's not just one new element. It's whether you're working or you're not working. Everyone's work has changed virtually. The whole rug was kind of taken away. I think there's the physical, technical aspects of it. And then there's the psychological aspects. I mean, for me, every single week I was traveling and suddenly it's like, you're not traveling. And like, what's your identity? Who are you? Like, how are you separate from your work? There's just all of this. And it's just fascinating and takes such courage. And I think it also really like brings us front and center of the reality, which is like, We always have the sense that we're in control and then actually we realize how fundamentally that was an illusion. Oh my God, yes. It puts such a fine point on that security is an illusion. Safety is an illusion. I have to imagine though that this is like an amazing opportunity in the social sciences in the way that like punctuated evolution theory is like some big environmental event leads to all this stuff. And I just have to imagine there's going to be a lot of truths revealed in the social sciences by this data set. Yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of my work, you know, my work is really in the context of emotions and what are the narratives that we have about our emotions? How do they make us fragile? How do they make us agile? And it's been so fascinating for me because not only am I living it, breathing it in a vulnerable way myself, but of course, these conversations around mental health, about well-being, there's so many conversations that I think we were starting to have, you know, even like if we think pre-pandemic that like depression and anxiety were the leading causes of disability globally, outstripping cancer, outstripping heart disease. And yet there's so much of this that is at the periphery. And I think what happens in this context is it all becomes, you know, something that's so front and center. And I think for me, in my work, it's just been extraordinary, actually. Yeah. In both the feeling of it and being in it. Yeah. And then also in, I think the power that comes from the conversation, the power that comes through to us all going, oh my God, like we are human. How about that? Yes. So I would love to just briefly set up what your work is. I love your TED talk, Gift and Power of Emotional Courage, as do 8 million other people. It's a very popular TED talk and it's very well done. But in that, you talk about this topic, which you also wrote a book called Emotional Agility, and you explore that, you know, we tend to have kind of rigid responses to emotions. And I would love for you to just kind of tell us what that looks like, because I think a lot of people identify with it. Yeah, so my work explores really one central question, which is what does it take for us to be healthy human beings? We have every day thousands of 
thoughts. The thoughts might be, you know, I'm not good enough or I'm being undermined or I'm bored. We have emotions, stress, loneliness, boredom, anxiety, cynicism. And then we have stories. And some of these stories were written on our mental chalkboards when we were five years old. Stories about who we are, what kind of love we deserve and so on. And so my work concerns really this core question, which is what does it take for us to be healthy human beings, to be healthy with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories. And what I explore in that TED Talk, and thanks for your kind words about it, it was a very powerful experience because I was really going through this core theme that runs through my work, which is the power of seeing. You know, the power of seeing the self and the power of seeing others. And in my talk, I express this word, I use this word, sabobona. And sabobona is this beautiful phrase that you hear every day on the streets of South Africa. It means hello. You know, so you hear it thousands of times a day, sabobona, yebo sabobona. But sabobona literally translated means I see you. And by seeing you, I bring you into being. And really what that means is that when you show up to someone, when you show up to someone in their vulnerability, in their pain, in their discomfort, in their needs, that the showing up to them, whether we are showing up to our children as a parent or a colleague or a spouse, when we show up to people, we help them to be, we help them to be the imperfect, beautiful essence of who we are as people. Yeah. But the opposite context of that or the different way we can think of seeing is do we see ourselves? We often have these ideas, oh, I had a good thought or a bad thought. It was positive or it was negative. It was, I'm happy and that's good, but if I'm sad, that's bad. And so what we have societally, and this is what I so explore in my work, is this idea that we have these rigid ideas that these human beautiful capacities are actually somehow sometimes abnormal, good or bad. And also binary, like how limiting that there's no nuance or complexity to it. It's good or bad. It's good or bad. You know, I'm feeling bad. I'm feeling sad. I shouldn't be sad. I should be grateful. And really, when we do this, like, what are we doing? We are refusing to see ourselves. We are refusing to see the essence of what makes us human. And then in doing that, what are the costs? And they're very real costs psychologically as well as in a broader scope. So, you know, what is my work? My work is what does it take in the way we see ourselves in order to be healthy? Because how we deal with our inner worlds is everything. And then, yeah, I guess that's an immediate delineation to make, which is you're saying healthy, which is not necessarily synonymous with happy or not synonymous with positive, right? Yes. I mean, I think one of the most dangerous narratives that we have in society is this idea that successful equals happy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I rail on this all the time. I had a fantasy of what it would feel like to have X amount of money and have X amount of people recognize me. And I was fortunate enough to find out that that really didn't result in what I hoped it would. I would suggest that not only does it not equate with being healthy, but actually the opposite. That when we have these narratives, it actually makes us unhealthy. It makes us fragile. It makes us and our society less resilient. Well, because as you point out, as you ignore things or you push them away, they rear up with most often more disastrous outcomes than had one just sat in it, experienced it, analyzed it, thought about what was to learn from the emotion, 
but the ignoring it or the pushing it away or the substituting or trying to get out of it with some other thing generally is more destructive than just experiencing it, yeah? Yeah, and, and it's avoidant. It's avoidant, you know, as wonderful as on the face of it, just think positive thoughts because you'll manifest a positive reality or just be happy or, oh, just look for silver linings. As wonderful as that sounds on the surface of it, yeah. what is it? It's denial. It's denial of the world as it is. It's avoidant. Yeah. And whenever we face ourselves or others with avoidance, what do we do? We incapacitate the ability for us to actually solve the problem, to deal with the world as it is, not as we wish it to be in some Instagrammed, you know, version of our imagining. Yeah. Just for fun, let's spitball on how we ended up in this situation, do you think? Do you think this is a kind of an undesirable byproduct of capitalism where advertising has been inundating us since the 30s and it's been selling happy? I mean, what are the roots of our obsession with a constant state of elation? <laughs> or is it just human? Does it predate that? It's like, ask the million dollar question five minutes into the interview. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, like, let's get heavy now. Let's get nerdy. <laughs> well, I think there are a couple of things. Firstly, definitely advertising sells us one way of being. And it's one thing when you are seeing that advert on a billboard as you driving home, it's quite another when you are bringing that advert into your home, into your bedroom, into your bed, yeah. uh, into your phone. And now you aren't just comparing yourself to this particular individual who you maybe didn't like in high school, but who's now become incredibly successful. Uh -huh. Now you're comparing yourself to a million of those individuals and they all are 18 years old. And <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. so we start engaging with one of the most toxic forms of human relatedness, which is self-comparison. Yeah. It's one of the most toxic ways that we can be. So I think that's one aspect of it. Another is psychological, which is really interesting. If we look at the history of psychology, when Freud first was talking about, you know, the subconscious and the id and the ego, it felt very difficult to measure it. It felt like it was almost intangible. Yeah. And then you get behaviorism in psychology. So you get this idea that, oh, you know, if the dog barks twice when you give it a bone, you can measure it. That feels very tangible. And so that's the move from the more kind of psychoanalytic traditions in psychology to the behaviorist traditions. And the behaviorist traditions are basically, if you can measure it, it exists. And where do emotions fall in? Emotions feel difficult, emotions feel intangible. And so they sidelined as being byproducts or end products or soft, weak. There are other reasons as well that I can get into, which I think are about gender. Yeah, and also the history of the DSM is fascinating, right? Where there is a very noble attempt to quantify some of this stuff so we can set parameters of what is mental illness and what is not. And in doing so, we kind of inadvertently create what a normal a psychological state is for a human. Well, I think that so much of what the DSM does is it tries to put parameters on these things. Yeah. But then in trying to put parameters, what we don't talk about is that suffering is normal. Right. I mean, that fragility is normal, that self-doubt is normal. And so it becomes so easy to just feel an overwhelming sense of shame and of 
not good enough. Yeah. What the cost ends up being is we are unable to be compassionate with ourselves because we see ourselves as being weak. We struggle to be in difficult conversations with people who are experiencing injustice because we start saying to them like, oh, you're being negative. Yeah. And there's a cost. I just want to outline like rigid responses to emotions would be like obsessively brooding on our feelings and being stuck in our own head. This is Monica. Hooked, and you. Yeah, yeah. Hooked on being right. Like all of a sudden the most paramount thing in life is that I'm right. That's me terribly. People who are victimized by their news feed. This is a very rigid response to the emotion. And yeah, and as we talked about like bottling emotions and pushing them aside and ignoring them, those would all fall under the umbrella you have being rigid as opposed to agile. Yes. So the idea behind agility is that every day we have thoughts, emotions, and stories, thousands of them, and they're normal. They're normal. Yeah. When we become rigid with them, we often start treating them as fact. So you'll say something like, I was undermined, and the fact that I was undermined means that my boss doesn't respect me. And so we start locking into rigid ways where we have these normal thoughts, emotions, stories, but we start treating them as fact. Or we have a difficult experience of feeling of being unhappy or feeling anxious, and we start associating that with or fusing that with a sense of like, that means I'm not good enough. That means I'm a bad person. And it actually stops us from living our lives. It stops us from reaching out. It stops us from loving because we're so embroiled in ourselves. And so often when people have these difficult thoughts, emotions, and stories, there's different ways we can come to them. The first is where we bottle them. So bottling is this idea that we push them aside. We say things like, I've just got to be happy. At least I've got a job. We, you know, engage in this idea that like somehow my suffering doesn't matter because there are lots of other people that are suffering. And so we push these emotions aside and we often do it with very good intentions. You know, we're trying to get on with life. We're trying to get on with our projects yeah. and the things that we're trying to do. Well, also there's a little bit of a noble pursuit of like trying not to be a narcissist egomaniac and you're kind of telling yourself like, don't indulge yourself so much. There is some aspect of it where you're like, get over yourself. You're not that important. You're not the center of the universe. Yeah, I don't want to navel gaze. Like I don't yes. want to do this. So we push it aside. And you know, what's just beautifully fascinating in the research on this is that when people push their emotions aside in this way, Often what they're starting to do is they're starting to, you know, again, it's an avoidance strategy. And so they'll get lost in drugs or they'll get lost in Netflix. It's not that those difficult emotions have now disappeared. It's rather we start engaging in substitute activities uh -huh. to create some kind of avoidance. And so that's the bottling. That's one kind of rigidity. Can I ask you a quick question? Cause, yeah, cause, go for it. Because sometimes I do that and I guess the explanation I give is, well, emotions are temporary and I just let it pass, like it passed. So I kind of ignored it. And then I now am in a different state of being. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's really important because of course, emotions are transient. So you don't want to get like too attached to any one feeling. What I'm talking about when I'm talking about bottling is when it becomes almost like the default way of dealing with your difficult emotions. It's like, I'm unhappy in my career and I'm struggling, but at least I've got something. And so I keep pushing it aside. Right. Or we know in our hearts that a relationship isn't working out. Mm. And so we push it aside. There's nothing wrong with, you know, every once in a while just getting lost in, in Netflix. Yeah, yeah. But it's when it becomes a default strategy that it's rigid. So that's bottling. And then, Monica, you know, the brooding part is when we get stuck <laughs> 
in the difficult emotion. It's, I feel bad. You know, why do I feel bad? Did I say that wrong? Did I say that right? Hmm. I often think about it. It's almost like if you imagine carrying a load of books, you know, bottling is where you carry those books so far away from you, you're pushing them away and then your arms and your heart and your feet get tired and you drop the books. And then brooding is when you are carrying those books, those emotion books so close to you, you're holding onto them, you're immersed in them and you're not able to see your child, to see the world, to perspective take, to see the other. And both of those have a cost. And sometimes we go from one to the other, but both of those are rigid ways of being. And of course, this happiness, this idea that I've just got to be happy is one version of bottling. Don't you think people so often are really just mining those emotions to confirm their narrative? So they have a story they're telling themselves about their life. Let's say for me, it's, oh yeah, that always happens. So I'm going to push it aside. And I actually take that as proof or so if Monica has a story about herself and she's maybe obsessing on a certain thing and then ignoring, as you say, like the light that's coming in or the love that's coming in because it doesn't fit into this emotional spiral that I'm in or she's in. Is that work in concert with what you're saying? Or? Yes, yes. If we think about like how do we as human beings make sense of our world, we make sense of our world through basically saying, oh, you know, this noise that I'm hearing is the washing machine and this other noise is my son crying, the one I need to pay attention to, the other I don't. So we are sensory beings. We constantly taking sensory information in and we're trying to make sense of that sensory information. Yeah. And so these thoughts, emotions, stories, they help us to develop a coherent picture. So it's not having them that makes us rigid. Having them makes us normal. It's when we hook into them, we start treating them as fact. Okay, I'm being undermined, so I'm going to shut down. Or that person doesn't care about me, so I'm now not going to reach out to them. Or there's no point in even trying. Or I feel down and I don't want to get out of bed, so now I'm not going to get out of bed. They're driving our actions. I feel stressed. And so I bring my cell phone to the table and I'm now not able to be present with my child because I'm so locked into my stress. So what's happening here is this, you know, you've probably heard and even spoken about on the podcast, Dax and Monica, this beautiful, uh, powerful idea that I think was so poignantly spoken to by Viktor Frankl, this idea between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and freedom. Viktor Frankl mm. survived the Nazi death camps. He survived the Nazi death camps and he describes how, you know, we've got ways that we can come to our being. Rigidity is when there's no space between stimulus and response. Right. You just are always reacting. We're not bringing other parts of ourselves forward. And the parts of ourselves that we aren't bringing forward is we're not bringing the beauty and the capaciousness in us, the wisdom, our values, our intentions, who we want to be in our relationship. So, you know, Monica, if you like feeling stuck in a difficult experience... What that's doing, even though you might be doing that with good intention, which is you want to try and understand what it's often doing is it's not allowing you to be present with people who love you. But I guess for me, the question is, so like, let's say I'm ruminating or I'm in stuck in an emotion. To me, the antidote is to do the other bad thing, which yes. is, okay, so this is something negative, but at least there's this and like finding some hope in that. But I don't think that's really good either because that's also not giving credit to the thing that's causing 
the negative emotion. So this is such a powerful insight because I think the first component of being more emotionally agile is facing into that emotion with compassion. You know, that what you're struggling with, what you're finding difficult is difficult. You know, it might be difficult to re-thread your business in a pandemic or to renegotiate your relationship in a pandemic. Like that's difficult. And so being able to bring compassion of your humanity to the emotions that you're experiencing is now doing something very different than getting stuck and feeling victimized by the emotion. Rather, what you're doing in that context is you loving yourself. You're saying like, this is tough. I've, I've got my own back. I'm going to look after myself here. So that's one way that we can start moving out. And also, I think this would be a great time to just talk about accuracy and how vital accuracy is in exploring your emotions and then getting to some place that's productive. Absolutely. So this idea is one of the ideas that I've found in my research, but that other people have found as well, which is that very often when we're struggling, we use very big labels to describe what we're feeling. I'm stressed is one of the most common ones we hear, or I'm busy, or, you know, it's this emotion that is a very big umbrella description of the reality of what's going on. But you know, if you think about it, there's often much more that's beneath that stress. It might be disappointed or I feel ashamed or embarrassed or I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm feeling depleted. So when you label everything as stress, that doesn't actually allow you to galvanize or find anything within that stress. It just feels this amorphous experience. Yeah. So what's really fascinating, and it's this linguistic separation that happens, which is very powerful that you'll experience in therapy or that one experiences in journaling, which is when you go beyond just saying, oh, I'm stressed. And you say to yourself, what are one or two other things that I'm experiencing here? Like, what is this thing that I'm calling stress? What is it really? And when you label that more accurately, something really powerful happens that amorphous experience now becomes something that has defined parameters. As soon as you say, oh, it's depleted, you're now able to understand the cause of that emotion and also what it is you need to do in relation to it. I need to engage in self-care. If you're feeling disappointed, it might be that you need to have a courageous conversation. And it's so powerful. It's so small and yet extraordinarily powerful when we label our emotions more accurately. This is called emotion granularity. What I love is that you say, you know, your emotions are the data and then you can explore causality or how it's not in concert with your values, right? Like it's a great piece of data to then do some further exploring. Yeah, when we're rigid, when we're stuck in our emotions or when we're hustling with our emotions, when we're saying things like, I shouldn't feel this, I'm not allowed to feel this, et cetera, basically what you're doing is you're at war with yourself. So what happens when we have these ideas of emotions as being good or bad is we'll often have an emotion where we say, you know, I'm unhappy, but now I'm unhappy that I'm unhappy because I should be happy. And what we're doing is we're struggling with our difficult emotion. The opposite, which is when we face into what we're experiencing, with compassion, with saying, you know, I didn't have an instruction manual about how to navigate my relationship in a pandemic at home with my spouse 24-7. I didn't get an instruction manual 
with us and yet I'm in this place and it's tough and we can face into that with compassion. Now what we're doing is we're ending the war inside of us by quite literally dropping the rope. We now on trying to say whether we should or shouldn't feel something. Instead, we're saying, this is what I do feel. I'm seeing myself. Again, this seeing comes through. And what is it that then happens? You are able to say when you have an imaginary piece of paper and on that one side of the piece of paper, you might have the word lonely that you're feeling. And you can be lonely in a crowd. You can be lonely in a house full of people and children. You can be lonely when you're with your spouse 24-7. And so lonely might be on the one side of that piece of paper. On the other side of the piece of paper, what society would have you do is to find the silver lining or to persuade yourself now why you're so lucky that you shouldn't be lonely. But what I would invite people to do is something very different, which is turn that piece of paper over and ask, what is the value that this emotion is signposting? What is the need that this emotion is telling me that I have as a human being right now? Loneliness might be signposting that you value intimacy and connection. And that even though you're all so busy in your household, you need more of it. Grief might be signposting that there is love inside of you that is looking for a home. Boredom. And we can be boredom when we're busy. You know, day in and out, we know what the day is going to bring. We can be busy, but bored. Boredom might be signposting that you value learning and growth and that you need more of it. And so you are now not stuck in some narrative of who you should be or what you should be or how you should be acting, but rather you are showing up to your emotional truth and learning from that. Yeah, you're getting into action, as we would say in AA. Like now you're into action and through action, we get results, you know, not always the ones we desire, but you know, one must take steps and get busy because it won't just miraculously vanish. Yes, yes. And it's a very particular kind of action that I'm hearing you talk about, Dex, which is purposeful, intentional action, as opposed to autopilot action. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Are there some fantastic concerts coming to your city this summer? Mine too. In fact, Anderson Pack's playing at the Hollywood Bowl. I can't wait for Ooh, it. Ooh, that's exciting. If you want to be sure to see your favorite artist, you need to jump on it right away. I've already DM'd him saying, yes, I got to be in that front row. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. It's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. So what's the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Got your eye on a rock star candidate? ZipRecruiter's invite to apply feature lets you cut the line. Once you review ZipRecruiter's list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can easily invite your top choices to apply to encourage them to apply sooner. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
We are supported by BetterHelp. Listen, I understand that sometimes you want to keep things to yourself, process your emotions in your own time. But if you keep everything bottled up, it can have some serious consequences. I have therapy on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to it. I had therapy this morning. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and it put me in the greatest mood. We had a long, big day, and I just felt much better for having you were some... not to out you. You were a little grumpy going in. I was. I was. I was to be Rob specific. and I received some texts. Yeah, I was morning. locked out of my therapy setting, which is this attic. <laughs> But then you felt much better after. I felt much better. And I even made some apologies. Um, Talking things out can be so helpful. And if you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend therapy. Check out BetterHelp if you've been thinking of trying therapy. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for any reason for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DAX. We are supported by Taco Bell. Oh, man. We often do two recordings a day and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all new cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is Mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. You point out that, like, here would be a normal scenario for people, I think, is they're watching the news and then all of a sudden... You know, there's probably some update on the news about how the American car manufacturers are doing internationally. They don't care. Then there's a thing about a sewer plant that broke. No one cares. And then something ignites you. And now you're very emotional. And what you point out is that that's kind of an opportunity for you to discover one of your values. Yeah. While our emotions are transient, we tend not to get upset again and again and again about stuff that doesn't matter to us. And so this is where our emotions are foundational to us as human beings. And so one of the most powerful ways we can come to the world is by knowing our own why. You know, what is it that matters to us as people? And so how do we begin to understand that? One of the ways we begin is when we feel a tough emotion, instead of racing for the emotional exits, is to say, what value is that emotion signaling? That value might be, I feel rage when I watch the news and that rage is signaling that I value equity and fairness. And the power is then the power of not acting into your emotion because then your emotion's owning you. The power is acting into your value, which is saying, what do I need to do that brings me closer to this thing that matters? Is it a difficult conversation? Is it volunteering? Like, what is that action for me? Okay, now this is potentially antagonistic. So I read all that and I like it. I do. And I believe it's true, but it feels a little scapegoaty to me. Like, so if you're watching the news and you get pissed off about this thing and then you go, well, I have a really strong sense of justice. That's almost complimentary. Where I find personally, most often I become emotional 
when one of my fears is triggered. So if I'm fighting with my wife because I think she's picking her job over me or our kids over me or whatever it is, that's really five-year-old Dax that grew up with a single mother who worked a ton, who really wanted to be chosen first and prioritized first. And when that childhood thing gets triggered, I am now acting very emotionally. Everything is heightened immediately. But if it's another thing that she does that's objectively annoying, but it doesn't bother me at all because who gives a shit? I don't really have a fear of the kitchen cabinet doors always being open. It's just inconvenient. It doesn't make <laughs> me irrationally angry at her. I just find that for me, anytime I'm emotional, I look at it as an opportunity to figure out like, okay, what fears are you still carrying around that you're not working through or that you're not taking steps to address? Is it financial insecurity? Okay, well, if this is triggering me, then am I planning responsibly. Do I need to give some money away to demonstrate to myself, you know, take contrary action? So I'm curious how you think that all folds in. Yeah. I mean, I think it folds in exactly coherently with the messaging, which is that the difficult emotions we have, whether that emotion is a fear-based emotion or an anger-based emotion or some other based emotion, those emotions signposts stuff that's important to us. Yeah. It signposts our needs or our values or our wants as a human. And when we push them aside in the service of some kind of denial or forced positivity or I'm right and you're wrong and I'm just going to take it out on you, what we are actually doing is we are losing our capacity as human beings because, you know, internal pain always comes out. Yeah. And if we are more able to do away with these narratives of I've just got to be positive and everyone else has just got to be positive and if they're negative, then they're toxic. And then, you know, actually, I feel like so often what we're doing is we are just socially gaslighting ourselves. And instead, if we can just move into this recognition that like we're having this feeling that these feelings are normal, you know, this Charles Darwin, Charles Darwin described how our emotions are functional. Our emotions are adaptive. Our emotions have evolved to signal to others what our needs are, but also to signal to ourselves what our needs are. Well, it's interesting because I was going to ask you how one would go about defining their values. It seems like a very simple proposition, but in fact, I bet most people couldn't list the most important 10 values that they carry around. But weirdly enough, it's almost like the null hypothesis. Your emotions can reverse inform you of what your values are? There are a couple of ways you can connect with your values. The first is by connecting with these difficult emotions. And, and I think the example that you gave earlier, which is, you know, there's a five-year-old Dex in you saying, see me, see me and love me. And, you know, am I enough? And there are other ways we can do that as well. You know, it's interesting. Often people talk about values, but values often feel very abstract. And, yeah. and the way that I think of values in my work is that they're qualities of action. Qualities of action. They're qualities of action. Like literally every day, if I value my health, I have a choice point every day. Do I go towards the muffin or do I go towards the fruit? The one will bring me towards my value. The one will take me away from my value. If I value my relationship and I'm fighting with my spouse, the choice point that I have is the one value takes me away from the value of that relationship, which is I'm now going to stonewall and I'm getting stuck in being right. And the other says, 
gee, I'm upset and I love this person. You know, we have the capacity to have this beautiful bothness, this capacity to both be angry and love someone and value them at the same time. And I'm going to move in the direction of those values. So there are other ways that we can think about values. Like, for instance, what did I do today that was worthwhile? What did I do today that was worthwhile? Not what did I do today that felt good, that felt fun. What did I do today that was worthwhile? Often it's the difficult stuff that was worthwhile. Yeah, that's the truth. One thing you said that I love, and I think we all do this, which is saying like, I am sad. I am angry. I am pissed. You know, I am, and that's not the right approach. We do this all the time. I am sad. I am not good enough. I am unworthy. I'm ashamed. When we use this language, what we are doing is we are defining ourselves by the emotion. All of me, 100% of me is that emotion. I am sad. There is no space for anything else. So you literally have become fused with that emotion. It becomes your identity, right? And we fight like hell to protect whatever identity we've decided that day we have. All of me, 100% of me is sad. And it's almost like the emotion is a cloud, you know, and you are the cloud. It's like, I am that cloud of sadness. But one way that we can start creating distance between us and our emotion, because a very important part of my work is the recognition that our emotions are these beautiful data, but they're not directives. Again, you know, I can show up to my son's frustration with his baby sister. I can love him. I can suborbona him. I can see him. I can be compassionate towards him. It doesn't mean that I'm endorsing his idea that he gets to give away to the first stranger that he sees in a shopping mall. Right. Okay. We own our emotions. They don't own us. So when we start doing things like labeling our emotions more accurately, like I described earlier, what we're doing is we're creating that space between us and our emotions in the Viktor Frankl context. When we say, I am sad, there's no space between me and my emotion. I am all of what I'm describing. But if we instead just notice our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories for what they are, then we create that distance. And the way we do this is we, instead of I am sad, I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. Yeah, that's powerful, yeah. Yeah, it's so subtle, but just powerful. Because you aren't the cloud, you are the sky, you aren't your emotion, you have an emotion. It's very Buddhist, right? As I understand it, Buddhist, which is like, life isn't suffering. Suffering is actually wanting to be in another state than you're in. So it's really like sadness isn't nearly as uncomfortable as we think. It's actually the action of trying to not be sad that's so uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, the more we try to control what is uncontrollable, the more we increase our suffering. Yeah. Denial is unsustainable and trying to control stuff that's uncontrollable is a form of denial. We will all die. Like we will all die. There is injustice in the world. There is pain in the world. And trying to pretend otherwise basically makes us more fragile. Whereas if we instead face into this is what's the reality that life is fragile, that these difficult emotions are part of what I should be experiencing as a human being. Now we become more able because we're now not trying to deal with some fictional version. We're now 
dealing with the world as it is. You know, Dex, one of the things you mentioned earlier on in this conversation is, is my TED talk. And I referred a little bit in that talk to an experience that I had when I was around five years old. And that was, I became very scared of death. And this is actually very normal. Around the age of five or six years old, children become aware of their own mortality. They realize that- Well, I've had this experience twice with my two kids. With I know, your kids? I know exactly what you're uh, talking about. Yeah, it's like they have this growing horror, this growing realization that you will not be around forever. Yeah, for them, it started with me. Like they seem to recognize my mortality, obviously, yes. quicker. And then it was like, first mom and dad are gonna die. And then all of a sudden, like the light bulb went on. Oh, and I am too. And so I had this, and it's part of what is very normal in children's experience. But I remember at the age of five, finding my way into my parents' bedroom, like not just one night, but night after night after night. And I would lie between the two of them because I had this fear that if I went to sleep in my own room, that I was going to wake up and one of them would be dead. Mm. So I would lie between the two of them and I would say to my father, promise me you'll never die. You know, promise me you'll never die. And my father could have buffered me with forced or false positivity, what I've now come to call the tyranny of positivity, which is this forced, oh, don't worry, you've got nothing to worry about, everything's fine, you know, I'm going to be around. But he didn't, he didn't. He showed up to me, he said to me, Susie, we all die. We all die and it's normal to be scared. And Dex, what I realized is that the way he comforted me was not through denial. It was rather in coming to the difficult experience that I was having, showing up to it. And that actually gave me a sense of courage. You know, we all die. I was able to be with that difficult emotion and it helped me to become more resilient. This feeling that I don't need to pretend to myself, I'm not being lied to here but actually I'm able to recognize this reality and that takes courage. It was such a powerful experience. And 10 years later, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer and died. And I just had in the aftermath of that, this very difficult experience, but then also this recognition that somehow those conversations that I'd had with him in those early days had gone at a sense of resilience because they well, were- Well, you were more prepared for that, for I was sure. prepared, yeah, yeah. I was prepared. You know, pretending pain doesn't exist, whatever form that takes, whether it's socially, whether it's in the conversations about racial justice, pretending that that pain doesn't exist is just a pretext and it makes us more fragile. It doesn't make us more resilient. Yeah, my experience was at the risk of sounding like I'm getting on my atheist high horse. I will say, we had the talk with my oldest. Am I gonna die? Yes, you're gonna die. She starts bawling and it's two minutes of solid crying. And during the two minutes, I'm thinking, well, I have an out for this. I know exactly how I can get out of this, which is, but don't worry, we're both going to heaven and we'll be together. And I'm not religious, I'm an atheist, but boy, did I feel so compelled to say that because I could have solved the fear for her and I ultimately didn't do it. And then it just passed much quicker than I was fearing while it was going on. It was like, yeah, there was three minutes of crying 
And then she got interested in some other thing and it passed. But it was just my impatience in that moment that I wanted to solve that for her. So I think, you know, the temptation to race for the emotional exits, especially with our children is so strong. I have it all the time in different ways. But, you know, what are we teaching our children when we race for the emotional exits? What we're teaching them is that sadness is bad, that fear is to be feared. Mm -hmm. We're teaching them that there are good and bad emotions. You know, when a child comes and says, daddy, I didn't get invited to this birthday party. And your heart breaks because you never wanted your child to be the child who was rejected. And that temptation to jump in and say, don't worry, I'll phone Jack's parents and I'll make sure you get an invitation. You know, what are we doing? We are signaling to our children that sadness is not to be tolerated, that we'll jump in and make things right. Here is the disservice is our children are growing up in a fragile world where their hearts will be broken and broken again. Mm -hmm. And the greatest gift we can give our children is to, yes, teach them mathematics and science, but actually to help them with the emotional skills that can help them to navigate uncertainty. And so what does that look like practically? What it looks like is when your child is upset, even with good intentions, don't race for the emotional exits. The first thing we want to do is I can see you are in pain. What that is helping them to do is it's helping them to get comfortable with discomfort. And it's when they're comfortable with that discomfort that they're starting exactly what your children did, which is, oh, the sadness passed. They start recognizing the transience of emotion. You know, like I relearned it myself, which is like, okay, I can handle it and it'll work out. And I wouldn't have learned that, you know, and there'll be more of those. And yes, she will not get asked to the prom by the person and we'll sit there together and we'll mourn and I won't hire her a gigolo that's handsomer than the other guy. So yeah, I taught myself like, oh, you can get through this. You can sit in this and it'll be fine, you know? And that it'll pass and you know, you know that it'll pass. And that is a gift to know that emotions pass is a gift. The other thing you can help them do is you can help them to label their sadness. Like we spoke about earlier, the accuracy of, you know, yes, you upset that Jack didn't invite you to his birthday party and you feel angry about it. But actually, what is the emotion? It's disappointment. It's rejection. Mm -hmm. And helping children to accurately label their emotions. It is not an understatement to say that when we look at data on emotional well-being in a longitudinal way, what we know is that children who are more able to be granular with their emotions, that it is profoundly impactful in terms of positive mental health, well-being, and so on. And why is this? Because if you imagine a child who is you know, with someone else who says, oh, I've got this great idea. Let's let the air out of the principal's car tires. Okay, you want your child to be able to say, okay, what I'm feeling in this one emotion is excitement, but actually what's going on for me is disquiet. Actually what's going on for me is this feels not who I want to be as a person. Mm -hmm. And so helping children to label their emotions accurately is associated with greater levels of well-being, delayed gratification, the capacity to motivate more effectively. So we're sub-honoring our child, we're helping them to label, and then we're doing one other thing that is critical, which is exactly what we've spoken about already in this call, which is our emotions signpost our values. The child who says, I feel rejected, what is the value that that child has? The value is I 
value friendship. I value yeah, community. Friendship. Yeah, I value connection. community. Yeah. And so you can start saying to the child, what does being a good friend look like? How can you bring yourself as a friend to the situation? And, you know, just like the gymnast is able to be responsive effectively and agile to the environment that is changing around them. So we are able to be effective when we have a strong inner core, a sense of our character and values. And it's the greatest gift that we can give our children. Well, first of all, I wanted to own, I'm so impatient with other people's emotional states. Mm. I want to talk them out of it, or I want to quote, work them through it. I want to get them to the part where they recognize what fear they have and address that. Like I'm so impatient and it's becoming more and more clear. And now I'm starting, I think today when I was watching your thing, I started asking myself like, why am I so impatient? Why am I so uncomfortable with other people I love's discomfort? And, you know, I think some part of it is like, I tried to be perfect for my mom so she'd be happy and it didn't pan out. And now I'm trying to be perfect for them and everyone around me should be happy at all times because I'm trying to make them happy. And when they're not, it's a failing of my own and and I'm inadequate, or they would be happy around me. There's a lot going on. It's a terrible habit I have. It's a character defect. Monica, do you want to agree and say I'm just um, the worst about that? No, I won't <laughs> say you're the worst. You do like it when everyone's happy, and if they're not, it does feel like a personal assault on you a little bit. It's, it's so egocentric. But good, good realization. <laughs> I just want, if you wanted to take a minute to just say, yeah, I hate it. No. It's very uncomfortable. I'll take it. Not going to say it. Okay. Okay. Now with COVID, just some things that I thought of that I've noticed. First of all, if I were not in AA and I didn't talk to 30 or 40 men a week and hear what they're experiencing in the pandemic, I think I'd be proceeding through life thinking everyone's fine. I think I have this very unique opportunity that I'm weekly with men going like, oh my God, I'm going crazy because of this, or I'm going crazy because of that. And I start going, oh, we're all really, really affected by it. And I think I might miss that if I weren't in that kind of group. So everyone's suffering. Yeah. And could anyone be getting through all this without having some effect? Well, certainly what we know is that, as I'd mentioned earlier, even pre-pandemic, the World Health Organization was saying that depression was the leading cause of disability globally. And I am absolutely certain that what's very likely to happen is that there is going to be, you know, another pandemic, and that is a pandemic of desperation in terms of people's sense of capacity and well-being. And I think that this plays out in different ways. Firstly, people who are already experiencing difficulty, what this does is it often shines a spotlight on it. The other thing that I think it is doing is it's starting to get many of us to look at maybe some of the ways we were on autopilot previously and think about whether we were doing stuff that was consistent with who we wanted to be and how we wanted to live. Like there's definitely a moment of life saying to all of us right now, you know, are you agile? Well, I think we spend a lot of our lives building this routine, which becomes a coping distraction for me, at least I'll speak. I have all these wonderful distractions that prevent me from having to sit in any of my feelings. And then when those are all taken away from me, you know, I've got to really confront them. And then the other thing I really noticed, and it seemed universal in my group, which is I think a lot of us had these pockets of personal time and personal space, whether that was your commute to work 
or your flight somewhere, all these different areas of your life where you could be by yourself and recharge. Now, again, for people who are lonely, obviously it's another thing, but I think for a lot of us who are living in multi-member houses, there's just no space for the individual anymore to sit and recharge and nurture themselves. And this is where this understanding your emotions and intentionality becomes so powerful. When we move beyond saying I'm stressed and we're saying actually I'm depleted and the reason I'm depleted is because I do not have any headspace, then what do I need to do in action? You know, again, values are qualities of action and I care for this relationship. Then what it behooves us to do is to actually communicate our needs to the people that we love. Mm. And that communication might be, I mean, I know of people who've literally in one bedroom apartments put up little tents inside the apartment where, <laughs> where the person says, you know, this is my 15 minutes where basically what you're doing is you're starting to just not expect the other person to know your needs, but to actually communicate your needs and to communicate parameters. Because, you know, you highlight something earlier, which is that there's often in relationships a different level also of even neediness. One person is suffering right now and they want to talk and the other person just feels overwhelmed and they want silence. And so there can be a lot of hurt feelings that come out in that context because there's, there's this new dynamic that we're needing to negotiate and to navigate. And so the power of saying, this is what's going on for me, and I don't want my relationship to be the victim of it. This is what's going on for me. I need more space. How can I get more space? And communicating that need and actually coming to something that feels like it's got parameters around it is such an important and powerful way of being in a relationship in this context. Yeah. And in any context. Okay, now, and then the last question I want to ask you is, as you pointed out, it is a disability that affects more people than any other disease on planet Earth. And then so naturally, that really begs the question, why? And I have multiple theories, and I assume it's multi-layered explanation. But the one in particular I'm curious to ask you about is, you know, we know how we were designed to live. We know generally how many hours a day hunting and gathering societies worked versus how often they sat. And we are in an increasingly stimulating world. We travel very fast everywhere we go. We now have these devices that stimulate us all day long. I wrestle sometimes with the notion that we give our children sometimes kids melatonin, and then I'll be sitting there going like, I feel bad about this. And then another part of my brain's going, well, no, 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 no. They're living in a world that is so antithetical to how they were evolved. It's in their 14 hour day, the amount of stimulus and speed to think that they could live in that world and then go to sleep as if we were in the canopy as primates is also naive. So it's like I'm wrestling with this guilt, but also trying to acknowledge the reality of the world we live in and how it has a cost. And I just do wonder, do you think we're going to have to increasingly aid ourselves to counterbalance this very heightened high-tech world that is only gathering momentum? Yeah, I mean, I think that technology has outpaced our evolutionary capacity. And I think that we're going to need to learn more of these capacities about how to shape our environment 
So in the same way where we say we know that if there's fruit on the table in the kitchen, we are more likely to reach for the fruit. And if there's chocolate, we are more likely to reach for the chocolate. We are shaping our environment so that it invites a particular way of being with that environment. And I think as human beings, we are more and more going to be looking for ways to shape our environment effectively so that we can thrive in the context of this uncertainty. And those are behavioral options that I am a big proponent of. But is it naive, I guess I'm wondering? Is it going to require some other technology, be that biochemically? I mean, do you think that'll be enough? I mean, I think a lot of people think that there will be ultimately, you know, other ways that are going to help us to just bypass our difficulty in the sphere and just be some kind of hybrid form of what we are now. I don't think that that is around the corner. Uh I think that what is around the corner is the reality of what we're facing into our need to be compassionate with that reality, that that is tough, our need to be curious about what's going on, our need to be courageous and to be intentional, to be intentional. I remember reading a couple of years ago, this fascinating study that showed that at the time of the study that the average American spent nine years of their lives watching television. Oh, I'm at 18 for sure. Monica and I are in the high teens for sure, yeah. And so when we do that by default versus when we say what are choices that we are making and what are ways that I can block out how I want to come to technology and how I want to interface with technology and be intentional about it, I think that's really powerful. You know, and the other things that you draw on in your work as well, I mean, when my father died... I remember feeling so much that I just had to be okay, be okay, be okay, just get on with it, you know, and you kind of get swept away by this being okay, being the master of being okay. But journaling, like journaling is like an example. We're brothers and sisters in this regard. I saw that, yeah, in the wake of your father's death, you found that being honest with yourself in this book was a way to take some, quote, control of the situation. And I have found that to, I'm religious journaler as part of my sobriety and i don't know what the appeal to you is but for me it's like i need one thing i can be dead honest with at all times i have to be able to dump everything without shame or fear of judgment or anything without that i don't know you know how i would feel I mean, what I experienced in that context for me was my father dying on a Friday, me going back to school on the Monday, trying to be okay, trying to be okay, trying to be okay. But what an English teacher, after my dad died, this English teacher handed out these notebooks and she said, you know, write, tell the truth, write like no one is reading. And it was this invitation to show up to myself. And I think Mm. that there is this invitation right now for all of us to show up to ourselves and to say, Who do we want to be, you know, even in the midst of complexity? Yeah. Who do we want to be and what is worthwhile and what are my values? And these are powerful ways of bringing ourselves healthily and wholeheartedly to what is ultimately a fragile and beautiful world. Yeah, it's a really great opportunity for all of us to look at the big picture and go, okay, what things do we want to pick back up and which ones did we like putting down? And, you know, it is a kind of second shot at what course our lives are on. Yeah. It's simultaneously a gut punch. Yeah. Like any gut punch is, and it is an invitation to step into a future that, that is intentional. Yeah. 
Well, that's a lovely note to Very. end on. Yeah. Susan, I like you immensely, and not just because of your charming accent, although oh. it helps. It does help. <laughs> I would urge everyone to get your book, Emotional Agility. I would also urge everyone to watch your wonderful TED Talk, The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. Susan David, please come see us again, and we really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. I loved it. Thank you so much. Okay, take Thank care. Thank you. Goodbye. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert. If you dare. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy. So easy. The best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by New Balance. Whether you're going for your first ever jog around the park, getting ready for a marathon, or even picking up the pace on the last stretch before you get home, if you run, you're a runner. Whether you need shoes for comfort, stability, or race day speed, they've got you covered. Because the only right way to run is your way. New Balance. Run your way. Visit newbalance.com running to learn more. We are supported by Intuit, the technology platform that builds your financial confidence. There's some things that school doesn't really teach you, like how to handle the financial world. I mean, look, I did 16 years of school and I didn't have a single class on accruing debt or a hole that that puts you yeah, on. Yeah, they don't been, teach you that. No effort made whatsoever. If you want more financial knowledge, now is a great time to learn with Intuit for Education program. It has free, easy to use resources like getting a car loan with Credit Karma simulations, understanding taxes with TurboTax lessons, and even learning to run a business with QuickBooks simulations. Check out Intuit's free resources today at intuit.com slash education. Intuit, that's I-N-T-U-I-T dot com slash education. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Batman. Good morning. Good morning to you. It's not morning. No, it's uh, late afternoon, early evening. Neither. Yeah, late afternoon. Quarter to four. What do we call that late? Now with the time change, everything seems so dang late. I know. It's a mix of I like it and I hate it. I hate it. You hate it? Of course, because it's dark so early. Yeah, that part sucks. But I I do like the moment where you're like, oh, it's already seven. Then you look at your watch and you're like, oh, it's 430. I've got tons of day left. <laughs> that part I like. Okay. Have you had that moment where you think the party's over, but you're like, oh, no, the party's just starting? No, I feel the opposite. I feel like, oh, my God, it's only 4.30? I'm so tired. Well, we did go to bed at a crazy early hour in the sand dunes. Yes. That's bonkers. I went for one night to the sand dunes. With Laura and Matt and brought Linky. Mm -hmm. And we were all in the rack at 8.30 p.m. Yeah. It felt really (laughs) late. What a bunch of nerds. I know. People go out to the dunes to rage, and we were all in our sack, in our slumber sacks, at 8.30. 
Yeah, but then you got a burst of energy and then you <laughs> wanted to do things. Remember? Yeah. You really led the charge to go to sleep. Well, Aaron was there too, and he was also in bed before. Yeah, he was just hanging, watching telly on his phone. In bed. In his bed, yeah. 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 With his top off. And then little, I was- Little light gas. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was sleepy, so I said, I'm going to go to bed early. We were at the fire, mm-hmm. and you said, I'm going to go to bed early. Yeah. And then we were all like, huh, that doesn't sound terrible. Yeah. Let's do it. And then so we all followed you. Yeah. And then as soon as you got in your bunk bed, you were in the mood to party. <laughs> <laughs> you did. wanted to play cards. I did. You wanted to watch a movie. You watched The Crown. Yeah. I'm so into The Crown. You are? Oh, my God. Not as much as Queen's Gambit. Not as much as, well, in a different way, because The Crown is four seasons. So I have, like, so much left to watch. Mm. It's so exciting. Mm. I think I already talked about this on the last episode, but I, I skipped to season four because I wanted to watch the Princess Diana part. And it sounds like you'd recommend that. That's what I should do, huh? I loved it. I mean, this kind of ties, this is like kind of a ding, 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 because the mental health of these royals cannot be good Mm. because they have to sacrifice so much of their true beliefs and wants for the crown to service this fairy tale it's okay so i didn't know this but charles spoiler alert but it's real life yeah charles oh sorry history lesson thank you charles and diana like Uh never really in love oh that yeah that doesn't surprise anyone does it because he he was in love with this other lady, Camilla. He was previously in love. With Camilla. Who was and not available, right? Well, yeah, this is a fascinating story. They were dating. Okay. But then he was sent off to the army or the air force or something. He was sent oh. off. And then while he was gone, she got married. Oh. Yes. Oh, and, does she regret that? Well, what I found out. This is a spoiler. Okay. Uh, Charles's, like, kind of uncle. No. Oh, okay. I'm no, sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, okay. No, no, no. I went to the worst. No, because they have two kids. In, uh, William and Harry. Yeah, but. It wasn't in vitro. In vitro? No, oh, okay. So. Wait, the two guys that are popular right now are the offspring of those two? Of Diana and um, Chuck? Charles. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh. You know nothing about the royals. No, no. I, I, I Well, I make it a point not to. I now know everything about them. Yeah, I'm you're like a, an expert. I'm in a rabbit hole with We should it. have you on as an expert in, in, in monarchies. <laughs> oh, I would love it. <laughs> so Charles had a bad relationship with his dad, okay. but he had a really good relationship with his dad's uncle, Lord Mountbatten. Mountbatten? <laughs> Lord Mountbatten. He's a lord. Okay. And, um... Mountbatten, I think. And he is kind of a Charles' father figure. And he actually is the one that arranged for Charles to leave and arranged for Camilla to get married. Because <gasps> he didn't think she was good enough for him? Yep. Oh, my God. Who is Charles' dad? Prince Philip. King Henry? Prince Philip. Prince, He's still alive, Prince Philip? Yeah. Wait, Charles' dad is still alive? I think. The queen is still alive. Who's She's like king? 90. There's no king right now because there's only a queen. When's the last time there was a king? There will be. Once the queen dies, Charles will become king. Oh, my God. Isn't he a doofus? Is that? No. Oh, he's not. No. Oh, I'm sorry. 
I apologize to anyone that to him and anyone that likes him. I kind of thought he was seen as a doofus. No, maybe you're thinking of the molester guy, the pedophile. Yeah, yeah that's. I'm um, not thinking of him. I know who he is. I see him. Uh, uh, Epstein's Charles, pal. He's yeah. He's Charles's brother. Oh, he is. Yeah. And did he get along good with the the dad? Um. Who knows? You're not there I'm yet. I'm not there yet. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Charles has one sister, Anne, and two brothers. One of them is the Epstein guy. Okay. so embarrassing. Yeah. Anyway, so Charles was in love with Camilla. Then mm-hmm. he comes back because she's married. They're still oh, in love. Of course. So. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Ex- exactly. And the heart was already fond. Yes. So. so fond squared. Then they start having an affair. Oh, okay. Ooh, I hope hot. I don't get sued. I actually hope I do get sued. Oh, really? Yeah, by the queen. Oh, she wouldn't um, muddy herself up by like suing a civilian, I would a plebeian. Love to meet her. You would? Now I do want to meet her. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Okay, <laughs> so the, uh, we're so different in this way. Do you not watch it and go like, "Oh my god." This is a fairy tale. Yeah, of course. It's a joke. Yeah. No one's born special. Yeah. No one's born royal. What a ridiculous fairy tale everyone bought into. I do. And we're still perpetuating it. I do think it. And doesn't that anger you? It doesn't anger me because it's not like it's taking anything out of my pocket. Like, I don't care if they have this kind of delusional life. I I just find it fascinating. I think when anyone, anyone who agrees to view them as royal and special is co-signing on their fairy tale. I'm going to kiss her hand. Oh my God, you're going to You have to. I wouldn't. Dex, you're never going to get invited to see the queen. Clearly, I've made my... No, I've made my... You're just like the queen's husband. He did not want to bow to her. Right. At her coronation. And she was like, yes, you are going to bow to me, oh husband. Oh, People shouldn't bow to people. Let me just say that. No one, sh- no one on planet Earth t- that's ever lived uh, deserves to be bowed to. I am so opposed to that. I can't believe you're not. Well, she's given powers by God. Oh, my God. That, well, that seals it. <laughs> okay, but listen. So then he goes. So then he's in love. They have this affair. Can I, can I pause you? Yeah. And this will really anger a lot of people, including oh you. God. I have more respect for Pablo Escobar. No, That that's man horrible. gave himself power. He he didn't just receive it from being born. Who cares? He, this isn't about power. They do good things. They do do a lot of charities and a lot of stuff. Pablo Escobar just killed a bunch of people. Well, no, he built a, a ton of housing. And in killed Medellin. a bunch of people. Yeah, he killed a bunch of people. So, Oh, you don't think the royals have killed the most amount of people? Anybody? All these dingbat, uh, ego-driven battles for three, four, five hundred years all throughout Europe? Okay. They are responsible for more deaths than anybody. You've got to acknowledge no. that. I yes, the monarch. We can't say that. We don't know that. No, we hundred percent know this. All the wars were waged over the egos of these royal families. Well, that this was is well. Then. That was old times. Okay, that. But that's what. That's the history of it. Some people do think the queen had Diana killed. Oh my gosh. Like, okay. Let's be real careful about that. I know it's a theory. Okay. It's probably not true. I don't think. I'm it's just true. saying, uh, kings beheaded people. Okay. They, Can they, I finish my story? Th- yeah. Go ahead. So Charles. And Camilla then had were having an affair. and Did he ever get her pregnant? Not that I know of. Okay. And then he had to marry Diana. He had mm. to like pull it together mm. for the crown and the family. And 
he married Diana, who was a little bit fancy, but not that fancy, but a little bit fancy because she was a lady. Okay. Then they had this loveless marriage, and he was in love with Camilla the whole time. Sure. Who was she in love with? She was married to this man still. No, no, I know they were married. Uh, who was she in love with? Did she not have any love in her life? Who, Diana? Yeah. Oh, Diana. Um, Diana did have some, some affairs. Right. Who did she? So she had an affair with, Movie there's stars? rumors. <gasps> I don't know about. Matt Damon? Oh, my God. Oh, I hope. Oh, wow. There's rumors about, like, bodyguards and this and Ooh. that. And then this one guy was, like, some military guy. That's the main, I forget his name, but that's, like, the main person they know of that she had an affair with. And then there's another rumor. Because oh. he looks a lot like Harry. Oh, that that's Harry's dad. Yeah. But that's, again. That's an exciting rumor. It's a rumor. It's a rumor. It's only a rumor. And I'm learning of it for the first time right now. Yeah. So I'm not betting on it. I just, it's exciting it's rumor. It's exciting. So. Does he have red hair? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. But I think a lot of the royals had reddish hair. Yeah. English people have red hair a They lot. sure do. So then Diana dies, tragically, as we know. Okay. And then now Charles and Camilla are married. How did that happen? They got divorced. Diana and, and Charles got divorced. Before she died. Yes. And then a couple a year later, I think, she died, maybe by the hand to the by, okay, by the careful. hand of the queen. <laughs> okay. And and okay, then careful. Well, no, it was by the hand of a drunk driver, is what it was. Well, but he, she could have could have what? I don't know. Made I don't the know guy the drunk? theory, yeah. <laughs> well, as we have a show about debunking conspiracies. I just want to point out the driver of that car was hammered. He was, yeah, but, so. but you know, the reason there was a ton of paparazzi. Yes, chasing they him. were outrunning paparazzi. Yeah. yeah. And crashed in a tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. She was always like. Mobbed. Totally mobbed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I don't think the queen can orchestrate a mob of paparazzi and a, drunk, and a drunk driver. She's the God gave, gave her, God gave her power. So she can. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> then she dies. It's horrible. Camilla. Gets divorced. Oh, she has a divorce of her own. Yep. Okay. And then years later, Camilla and Charles oh. get married and they're still together. And it's really it's interesting. It's a beautiful love story. Well, it's, that's the part. <laughs> that's what I actually find fascinating because Diana, Princess Diana, Lady Diana, is so beloved, you know. Yeah. She was the people's princess. Yeah. Princess to the people. And everyone loved her and she had great fashion and she was this icon. Uh -huh. So it was like she, you know, she was always looked at as that. And it was this like love story that people watched. But the real love story was Charles and Camilla. Oh. It's kind of the real fairy tale, even though no one, people might not like that I said that. I also want to backtrack and be clear. I, I imagine there's a bunch of really nice people within the royal family. I'm not saying that they're all idiots what i'm saying is the premise is fucking idiotic right but what can they do now now they're just in it. well i like the two that said fuck this harry yeah harry and Meghan markle yeah if that's what if that was them then yeah i applaud that, was that. Them. yeah go this is this is guys everyone needs to stop this charade okay we're not entitled to anything we we're not ordained by god we're just people we poop we go poo poo every day they don't Oh my gosh. They don't poop. You That's think they're reptiles? Oh, oh, the reptile people. Ding, Is there ding, anything ding. in the uh, crown about them being reptiles? Not yet, but oh. I'm on season one. Mm. So Which is see. season four. No, I finished season four now. Oh. So I finished season four. I blew through that. 
And then I decided I'm going to watch the whole thing. You're so ambitious with your watching. I really Thank applaud you. it. Yeah. You got through um, Queen's Gambit in a couple hours. If I like it, I'm in. Yeah. That's what Aaron does too. <laughs> I said on a Monday, like, you should check out Queen's Gambit. And on Wednesday when he arrived, he had seen the whole thing. <laughs> and he loved it. So good. Yeah. Both ding, 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 Queen, Crown. Oh, yeah. Queen, Crown's Gambit. Yeah. Crown's Gambit. I love it. Now I love the royals. Oh, my God. I I've lost you. William and Harry. But you're a romantic and you like fairy tales. So this kind of makes sense. Do you remember at her funeral? No. Oh, I do. At her funeral, it was really sad. The boys. Like, oh, it was so sad. I don't like that. I don't like the kids have to go in public to mourn their parents. And then there was this like, like Jack Jr. Beautiful flower arrangement and a little card and it said mummy. I, I know. I don't like that. You know what I don't like? What? William's daughter's name is Charlotte. Who's William? The son, the oh. oldest son, who will also be king. He'll be king after Charles is king. Oh, okay. That's exciting for him. Very. That's probably why Harry kind of defected, because yeah. he's like, I'm not going to be king, so who cares? Right. Yeah, but if he was going to be king, he might not have medal. done it. So he's like, I'm not going to go to the Olympics if I'm getting But silver. is that that noble? Well, we don't really know if that's why. He might have just said this whole thing is preposterous. He probably did. Yeah. A lot of the crown is them trying to preserve the sanctity of it like not let people think it's silly of course that's the yeah. same thing the catholic church does yeah. like all these institutions yeah. that are thousands of years old that are just objectively so arcane yeah look even if you believe in god that's great if you believe in god and I, but the notion that there's a guy uh down in rome who sh who should pick kings is just a little it's out there for me it really is and that they have all this power and all this money and all this protection and they can keep, you know, this horrendous scandal that just keeps endlessly unfolding. The the pedophile scandal oh, within yeah. the Catholic Church. It just it won't go away. Yeah. Every time you think the lid's blown off it. I mean, it was just two weeks ago I heard another thing about it. Ugh. Oh, mm. humans. Wow. We love status. We do. Yeah. We do love status. But it's it's just fascinating, the inner workings. I think... The mental health element of it is really, well, they don't want to be, like in my, the last episode, Elizabeth asked for an apology from her uncle who was the king. He abdicated the throne because they didn't let him marry the woman he loved because she was divorced. Oh, I mean, again, <laughs> what, are we, what are we talking about? But this was a long time ago. Then he uh, abdicated the throne. So then her dad then had to become the king. That's the king's speech. You know, he has a stutter. Oh, yeah. that was a good movie. Yeah. I liked him. Yeah, he's- Only because he had a stutter. He's beloved. Yeah. And um, then when he died, Elizabeth became queen. Okay. I forgot why it was said that. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, then in the show, she... <laughs> oh, you're talking about mental health. Yeah, in yeah. the show, she says to the uncle, you owe me an apology. You don't think I wanted to live a normal life? Like, they're stuck. Right. And I would imagine the rat fuck of it all, too, is that you're in this position that everybody envies, yes, and it's not ex fun. Exactly. It's a horrible So you're not life. even allowed to acknowledge it. It sucks. Yep. Or you're seen as being ungrateful. Mm -hmm. And it's like... Yeah, their lives are the Shitting worst. Shit on a gold toilet is only so fun. Being in a house yeah. with 80 hallways is only so fun. It's probably fun for two weeks. Yeah. And then that's it. That's not, that's not what is fun in life. What's fun in life is fucking divorced women. 
and then marrying them. Oh, wow. And hanging out with divorced people. Oh, my God. And hanging out with drug addicts and artists. That's what's fun in life. Well, okay. So all this decorum. I don't know about that. My mother was divorced, so watch your tongue. It's not fun. My mom wasn't good enough for the royal family. Oh, God. See how personal it got? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, um... I'm glad you like this show so much. It's fun to see you so excited. Thank you. I wrote it down. I want to talk about the crown <laughs> and mental health. Do you think the actual weight of the crown might have something to do too? It's heavy. Mother? I just yeah. watched that episode. Oh, wait, there's an episode about it? Well, she, the coronation. It's too heavy. Is it solid gold? It, they have to like practice walking because it's like really heavy. Oh my God. I They're know. like, um, Daniel Ricardo would be the perfect princess. Oh, he has the greatest neck Next, for it. yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. He wouldn't even know that crown was They should bring him in to do some neck training for the royals. Or, or at least his trainer. I think, I think Daniel knows trainer. enough at this point. He knows stuff. I wonder if Daniel loves the royal family. I guess they're, they're, they're in the Commonwealth, Australia, so they probably are more into it. Even when I was a kid, I'd be up in Canada, you know, which is part of the Commonwealth. And, yeah. the, and the road signs were all in crowns, right? So there's a crown around the speed limit. And Ooh. I'm like, what is the going on here? <laughs> yeah. I think oh. you would find it more fascinating if you didn't have a personal vendetta about your mom. <laughs> so and, cl- and a class warfare struggle. That's about your mom. Sure. Or me. Yeah, all connected. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you love the idea of like, Trust fund people who get a billion dollars. I don't have the thing you have. No, that doesn't bother you. No, because it that some people on planet Earth have to earn their stuff and some people don't. You should. Well, I don't know if I should. I I I don't take it personally that that is happening. I think it's frustrating that some yeah that there's this huge discrepancy where some people are just given a. A whole life. Yeah. And other people are given nothing and are struggling. And I want to find a more middle ground about all of it. Yeah. But when I hear, oh, that trust fund kid, that doesn't do anything for me in my insides. Like, I don't care. I know that I worked hard. And again, I've met nice trust fund people. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it is right conceptually that some people don't have to do anything and some people have to do everything and still live in poverty i know well and I agree. someone out there is definitely thinking well you're going to give your kids mm-hmm. money and you're right i'm gonna so i'm a total hypocrite i'll i'll say that yeah because I, I can see where they justify it so i go well i made this money mm-hmm. so i get to do whatever the fuck i want with this money and if that's give it to my kids that's my right to give it to my kids yeah that's what those people say i know so I'm I'm acknowledge I'm just owning my own hypocrisy. I I know that. So if you know it's hypocritical, then why don't you reverse and say and not be upset by that? Um. So this is a common argument that's made on the right. So if someone says they're in favor of higher taxes, a real common thing on the right is to text that per, or rather tweet that person. Why don't you just give more money to the government yourself if you really believe that you'd give all your money they think they've got them in checkmate but i'll tell you why that's a really useless argument the person who wants higher taxes wants the country to change and they know that if they individually give all their money to the government that is not going to carry out their goal so it's a stupid stupid retort that doesn't hold any weight similarly me deciding to not give my children money 
is not going to fix the problem I am offended by. But if we all agreed, if we, if there was a law and we all agreed, this is bonkers that some people never, ever have to work a day in their life and other people cannot make ends meet, then I'm signing up because I want the change. Mm -hmm. But I, I but, but there's no reason I need to be a sacrificial lamb that will yield no results. That's not what I was saying. Uh, I oh, was saying, saying, why don't you then just give the trust fund parents the benefit of the doubt, the trust fund kids, like, why, why do you still have anger towards that if you know you're going to do the same thing? Well, there's a lot of things going on here. One conversation is, do I not understand the people who give their kids all that money? No, I do understand those people. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's one argument or one debate to be had. Another debate is, is it right that in this country, X amount of percentage of the people don't ever have to do anything? That on its face is wrong. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's I don't find there to be a paradox there that I understand the parents and that also that I think there shouldn't be this enormous difference. Yeah, I don't think there should be an enormous difference at all. But I, it doesn't bother me that there are people who don't do anything. It bothers me that there are people who do everything and can't get anywhere. Yes, well, that's a good point. I, I, I like that point. Yeah, I'm not mad about lottery winners. I don't care if someone's dad gave them a billion dollars. Like, great. Then yeah, I don't, I don't either. And you're right. And I, I, I found because in LA you meet a lot of people that are in that situation. I find that it's been just generally speaking harder for them to be happy than the people I know who made their own shit. So I don't really think it's the gift that it seems like it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. I just want the ability for people to have a way out when they're doing working four jobs and still in a hard situation. So, yeah. Um. Okay. I have some facts. Hmm. Let's see. You brought up punctuated evolution theory. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read a little bit about that. Okay. In evolutionary biology, punctuated equilibrium, also called punctuated. Oh, wait. Oops. That's probably not what you were what you were talking about. As I remember it, there had been this kind of um, working theory in the early stages of evolution that it was kind of slow, predictable, and methodical. There was incremental change happening pretty predictably over a thousand year period, right? Uh -huh. And what they started observing in the archeological record is there's almost no change for a long, long time. And then there's rapid change mm -hmm. because of some environmental thing that happened or, you know, any number of reasons, a uh, asteroid hits the planet. And so this huge shift in the environment causes really rapid and accelerated evolution. Yeah. Okay. Then this is that, I, but this is called punctuated equilibrium. In evolutionary biology is a theory that proposes that once a species appears in the fossil record, the population will become stable, showing little evolutionary change for most of its geological history. This state of little or no morphological change is called stasis. When significant evolutionary change occurs, the theory proposes that it is generally restricted to rare and geologically rapid events of branching speciation called cladogenesis. Cladogenesis is a process by which a species splits into two distinct species rather than one species gradually transforming into another. Okay, so kind of similar to what mm, you were saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think the, the example in the biology book was, uh, so these moths, 
they were black and they probably would have stayed black forever. They, there would be no reason for some mutation to take off. Mm -hmm. But then there was a big volcano eruption. And so everything was covered in uh, like ash. So they were very visible to predators mm. and some tiny percentage of them were mutated to be white and then they blended in and then they overnight basically all turned oh, wow. white. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. She said that Charles Darwin said emotions are functional. So the study of the evolution of emotions dates back to the 19th century. Evolution and natural selection has been applied to the study of human communication, mainly by Charles Darwin in his 1872 work, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. Darwin researched the expression of emotions in an effort to support his theory of evolution. He proposed that much like other traits found in animals, emotions also evolved and were adapted over time. His work looked at not only facial expressions in animals and specifically humans, but attempted to point out parallels between behaviors in humans and other animals. According to evolutionary theory, different emotions evolved at different times. Primal emotions such as fear are associated with ancient parts of the brain and presumably evolved among our pre-mammal ancestors. Filial, I hope I'm saying that right, filial emotions such as a human mother's love for her offspring seems to have evolved among early mammals. Social emotions such as guilt and pride evolved among social primates. Sometimes a more recently evolved part of the brain moderates an older part of the brain, such as when the cortex moderates the amygdala's fear response. Evolutionary psychologists consider human emotions to be the best adapted to the life our ancestors led in nomadic foraging bands. You know, we were in Glamis in the sand dunes. Aaron and I were sitting at the fire, uh -huh. and it just crossed my mind that for a lot of the time that hominids were here, mm -hmm. not, not homo sapiens, but early hominids like australopithecines, they didn't even have fire. Yeah. So we we're sitting there around the fire and I said to him, how excruciating was the experience on planet Earth with this much computing power? Mind yeah. you, they didn't have as much as us, but still very, very smart, smarter than any other animal. Yeah. And nothing to occupy that brain with, not even fire. I know. Was it maddening? Of Were you course. just like sitting in the grass going, what the fuck are we doing? But what I is guess, this all about? But you have nothing to compare it to. So I don't think. I, I, it's either one or the other. Either they were so serene and peaceful and we're super fucked up because we're not supposed to live like this. Or it was maddeningly boring and yeah. useless. Because I think with our intelligence, you start asking what the reason for doing Point. anything is. yeah yeah and if you couldn't even make anything or build anything or cook I know, anything but you don't know that you can't you know like you don't know that it's a thing well that... you could scratch a picture on a rock right <laughs> <laughs> but you don't know like Oh my God, there's like spaghetti and I don't, I am not, don't have the ability to make it or eat it or like, it's none of that exists yet. For sure. But there's also like, there's not even salt yet, right? There's not, there's, yeah. and you can't cook meat. So if you're eating meat, it's raw, which is disgusting. Yeah. And, and you're just eating it for the protein. And then you're eating, you know, some leaves you gathered up with no dressing or anything. <laughs> There's no way the meal was delish. No, there isn't. There's but nothing saying... was pleasurable at all. They must have just fucked and had kids. Yeah, but I mean, I think, again, it's relative. Pleasure is relative. So maybe one piece of the meat tasted better than another piece. So mm. then that's like a good, that's an exciting Oh, okay. Get. Yeah, that's a good, I like that. <laughs> 
Don't I, you feel like you'd go mad? Well, I I myself <laughs> now would, of yeah, course, yeah. but not me as a um old lady. <laughs> We're just looking around. We got no clothes, no pockets, can't own anything because you can't put it anywhere. Or you got to carry whatever you own. I know. <laughs> Oh boy, (laughs) I got real scared. It's why thinking about it. You got just sitting in the sand. We're not going back. Don't worry. Just picture like sun goes down, you're sitting in the sand, and that's that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man, (laughs) can't be up at night. (laughs) There's no light. Okay. Well, kind of ding ding ding. You said Buddhists say life isn't suffering. Suffering is wanting to be in another state than you're in. So I did a, a just a quick pull up of Buddhists and suffering. I think this was on PBS or National Geographic. I forget. Okay. More simply put, suffering exists. It has a cause. It has an end, and it has a cause to bring about its end. In Buddhism, desire and ignorance lie at the root of suffering. By desire, Buddhists refer to craving pleasure, material goods, and immortality, craving. all of which are wants that can never be satisfied. Yeah. Yep. In Yuval's book, he. He used the word craving a lot. I could so relate to that. Yeah. Craving different mental states. Well, you're you're even doing it in regards to the old people. Uh-huh. I am. <laughs> I would have been, so there would have been so much suffering. They wouldn't have, they won't have cravings though because they don't know. Well, they would crave to be warm. Maybe. Like if they don't know what warmth is, would you crave it? I don't think well, so. Well, they would know it from when the weather was nice. Oh. Is the weather nice ever? Yes, absolutely. Think about the perfect spring day in Georgia. They had those days, but then the rains came and it got cold as hell and they didn't have (laughs) Gore-Tex. What's (laughs) Gore-Tex? Oh, you know, water resistant clothing. Oh, it's called Gore-Tex? That's a brand of of a water resistant material, (laughs) (laughs) Gore-Tex. Okay, she said that around the age of five or six, children become aware of their mortality. Children begin to grasp death's finality around age four. In one typical study, researchers found that 10% of three-year-olds understand irreversibility compared with 58% of four-year-olds. The other two aspects of death are learned a bit later, usually between age five and seven. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like that moment I described with Lincoln, she was three or four. Yeah. Maybe that's what they did entertain. Well, they probably sang. Oh, yeah, I made music. Yeah. Wow. Ooh. That's sweet. Ooga, booga, booga. Booga, booga, ooga. Do you think that's what their song was? Because in all the caveman movies, they go ooga, booga. I think that's the stereotype we put on them. You're probably right. They didn't legacy box any of that footage and it's all lost. <sighs> exactly. That's why you got a legacy box. You got to do it. You, you got to do it. So she talks a lot about honesty with your kids, which I think was good. And I just wanted to commend you because you're very honest with your kids. <laughs> uh, that's so funny you'd bring that up because this weekend. I know. Was... I wrote it down. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking of, so Lincoln is with us in the sand dunes and it's like a bunch of adults and her. And we somehow get on the subject of Michael Jackson uh-huh. and <laughs> we keep talking about him. Like, Saying all the stuff, and yeah. she keeps interjecting, saying, "What? <laughs> what do you do? What's he, what do you do? We well, molested children. What does that mean again? Well, he played with their private parts, and he showed him his private parts, and 
so on and so forth. It was inappropriate. It was in a, and it was very inappropriate. And she said, and she was just like, okay. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, she said, can I see a picture of him? Yeah, she. What really does went, he look like? Right, and then it became all about that he used to be black, and then he was white, and he used to ha- he used to be super cute, which he was, mm-hmm. and then he had that triangle nose and was white, and his chin was humongous. She was like. I mean, I think that was the first time she's ever seen a person that's transformed. Uh, sure. In a in, in pictures like that. And then you were talking about Neverland, and you were telling some story. Of friends about, of mine that have been there. Yes, and how Michael Jackson was laughing at the kid, like giggling. Giggling. And Lincoln goes, "Why is he like this?" Like she could not. She had heard so many stories up until that point her brain was like racking trying to figure out this person yeah how could this person be like this yes and and she wasn't saying it in a judgment she was asking like why is he like this yeah she needed an explanation yes i laughed so hard and i kept thinking about it because it was pretty (laughs) poignant like yeah and then my explanation was i mean what it's so incomplete. I'm like, well, he was very famous as a as a young boy. He had an abusive father. Trauma he, is the real trauma, reason, yeah. and not ever having a childhood, and God knows what sexual abuse he experienced. Blah blah blah. <laughs> Why does he like this? <laughs> he's a he's a tricky topic nowadays. Of course. Like, if you're gonna bring up Michael Jackson around your kids, you better buckle up for like a real long, awkward conversation yeah. with a lot of questions that you'll have to think of the. Perfect wording for Yeah, but you were honest <laughs> about it, which I thought was good. And I thought, I think most people would have just been like, nothing, you know, just brushed it off. And I was then, certainly and then tempted the to. Subject. Yeah, I was certainly tempted to change the subject. <laughs> you answered it well, I thought. Oh, thank you. I would love to hear, I wish I could overhear her now, um, maybe explain to uh, one of her peers I would love to hear like what Uh, what she heard, yeah, what she retained, how she makes sense of it, and how she would relay it to appear. Yes, I'm really curious. Uh, Yeah, Um, I I just realized something. What? It's Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh! Happy Thanksgiving! Happy Thanksgiving! We're gonna be together then too. Yeah, today. Today we're together. Yes. Yes. Um, Do you want to say three things you're thankful for? Oh yeah, I would. I would like to do more than three, but yeah, okay. I can hit you but with you have three. to kind of uh, dwindle it down to three. How come? Oh, it, just for this um, length of the podcast. Oh, <laughs> or you can. This is say the first time we've been concerned about the length. Of the <laughs> okay, but say however many. Okay, more. well, I want to say the health of my family. Mm-hmm. Number one. Yeah. That I'm sober today. Yeah. Um, that I have an impossibly great friendship circle that gives my life so much meaning. Enjoy. Those are nice. What are yours? My. I'm going to selfishly add my own health too. Okay. Yeah. I'm thankful for having employment in this tough year. Me too. I'm thankful for, I don't want to repeat yours, even though yours, some of yours are also some of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, the friendship circle. And the family, health of my family. Oh, and that you're sober. <laughs> Thank you. I'm thankful that... That's not nice. I shouldn't say that. Oh, I want to hear it so bad I was going to say now. I'm thankful that I don't live in Alaska because of seasonal affective disorder. Oh. But I'm not going to say that. Okay. 
Um, you can say you're thankful you live in a sunny climate. I know, but. More specifically, you're thankful you don't live in Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just be honest. I'm thankful that people really showed up in November at election time and that hopefully progress is on the horizon. And I'm thankful that even though I'm going to be away from my family for the holidays this year, which is going to be hard, mm-hmm. that I have a surrogate family. Yeah. And even I want to extend an offer to you. Okay. Feel free to storm up the stairs and get into the guest bedroom and then put your ear to the door and see if you can hear us talking about you. <gasps> really? Yeah. Just like I do at home. Yeah. Okay. I want you to have the full experience. Okay. I'm also, va- I- I'm really thankful that there's a vaccine that's 95, 95% uh, effective. I'm so thankful. Ooh, I can't wait to get that thing and fucking go places everywhere. I, I want to eat out every fucking day. I, I want to go to the movies. I want to fly all over the place. I, I want to touch everyone and kiss everyone and manhandle them, get yeah. sued. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> By the queen. <laughs> Do you think there's been a reduction in handsiness? Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I do. The one unintended benefit, I guess. Exactly. Unless you desire handy, handsiness and you didn't get it. Well, that is what ha- is happening too. Lots of loneliness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. But uh, a happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> bye. Uh, bye. Love everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm so thankful for everyone that listens to this. Oh, my God. Cause... I can't believe that we didn't start with that. Well, the employment, we both think. We're thankful for our employment, and that's them. That's everyone that listens. Yeah. But we should say it more specifically. You guys have given me my favorite job I've ever had in my life. Yeah, me too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. 